When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, sometimes I ponder ideas that, I don't know, for whatever reason, just pop into my head. Like, I was thinking about fishes the other day. I mean, we love fishes. It's our thing. The aquarium hobby and the industry are surprisingly vast, diverse institutions, if you will. Being a global hobby and industry, there are many, many players involved in this thing. Have you ever stopped just for a moment and contemplated just how many fishes are bred and collected each year worldwide, which end up in the ornamental tropical fish trade? I mean, it's it's a lot. And when we talk about breeding of tropical fishes, we're not just discussing the big commercial hatchery level, mind you. We need to take into consideration basement breeders, advanced hobbyists, and even the casual dabbler in the hobby. You know, cichlids, guppies, catfish, tetras, barbs, and thousands of species in between. It has to be a pretty staggering number, doesn't it? Where the mind really blows is when you think about just how many fishes are being produced and collected versus how many people are in the tropical fish hobby or simply keep tropical fish, you know, worldwide. I read somewhere that in, I think it was 2012, a study concluded that one in 10 British citizens keeps tropical fish. Like, wow. And that's just in Great Britain. Consider continental Europe, North America, and the Asian marketplace. I mean, it's even one in every 20 or 30 for that matter. Even if it's that, that's still a shitload of people. Yeah, that's a lot of fish too, like tons and tons of fish. Although I can't help but think to myself, where do they all go? I mean, how often do we purchase fishes for our aquariums? Weekly, monthly, more frequently? I mean, how many fishes did the average hobbyist purchase at one time? No one really has stats on this stuff. So if you find the numbers, they're not really too helpful. Now, I'm not trying to write a white paper here with detailed quantitative research data. I'm just pondering. Like most of my blogs and my podcasts, this is a combination of opinion and observation and good old-fashioned fish geek assumptions. However, if we just think about the possible numbers here, it is quite staggering. And, And that's the point today, to just sort of ponder this concept for a moment. We hear so much about pressure on natural habitats of fishes and wild populations and I think, you know, managed collecting is is good, captive breeding is better, but again, just how many fishes are in circulation at any given time? And this is just fishes. I didn't even mention corals or other invertebrates. I mean, I can tell you from my own experience co-owning a major retail coral propagation importer that we produce many thousands of frags a year in our 15,000 gallon facility here in Los Angeles. That's just frags of corals, mind you. We sold maricultured colonies too. Our focus was on sustainability. We could barely keep up with the demand at times. And we were just one mid-sized company doing this in a field of many in the U.S. alone. Just how large is the appetite for this stuff? It's got to be pretty huge, huh? As a member of the, you know, vibrant tropical fish community on various social media platforms, I'm often struck by the sheer quantity and frequency of, you know, for sale, for trade listings and say, 
Facebook groups, specialty clubs or forums or whatever. It seems like every day some hobbyist somewhere is selling at least a few variety of fishes or giving them away or trading them or whatever. Now, some of these are already in circulation. I, you know, in other words, fishes that the hobbyist bought or acquired from the local fish store or breeder, or etc. Maybe you couldn't keep them healthy, had no space for them, or just got tired of them. Uh, yet there are a lot of listings for cichlids and catfish, for example, that were spawned by a hobbyist who's the hobbyist who's listing them. And some of these are geographic morphs, captive bred strains, variations, unidentified wild subspecies, etc., etc. You know, there's even more fishes in circulation, right? And interestingly, I've talked to many vendors who sell tropical fishes over the years, and they literally will cite clubs and basement breeders as challenges to their business models. I find this fascinating and actually kind of cool, but man, that's a lot of channels for a lot of fishes, isn't it? How do we absorb all these fishes? How many tanks are out there? Well, if my decades of haunting fish clubs and shows is any indication, it's probably quite a few. I mean, I know dozens of fish geeks that maintain at least five to six aquariums and quite a few who have 30 to 60 in their fish rooms. And I know some that even have more. Then again, as fish geeks, we love to acquire new fish and coral for that matter. Think about your own habits at those club auctions and raffles. No matter how crowded your fish tanks are, you manage to find room for just a few more of those cool tetras, those resbora, whatever. Besides, they were only $3 for like 10 of them. You can't pass up a deal like that, right? Nah. As fish geeks, we're almost, I don't know, genetically programmed to accumulate fish. When we declare that we're done with acquiring new ones, I've seen this phenomenon play out hundreds of times at club meetings, hobby conventions, worldwide for decades. People say they're done and they're bidding on fishes. And I sometimes, sometimes think about this. When we can't find spare you know, space for our new fishes and we don't sell or give away any what do we do with our old fishes? No, I'm not suggesting any, anything sinister might be afoot. I'm merely pondering how we absorb so many fishes. How does this all go down? Do we just find space or do they get, you know, flushed down the toilet? I, I don't know. I, I can't believe that. No way. Well, maybe. Nah, no chance. Yet one can't, you know, help but wonder where the hell all the fishes go. I mean, I'm as active a hobbyist as anyone, but I personally haven't purchased or acquired any new fishes in a, a month or two at least. I may be a bit anal retentive in my selection process, you know, I've talked about that before, but there must be a few thousand other fish geeks like me worldwide, so maybe it's just a couple of million of you guys hogging all the fishes, right? It is a big planet filled with, you know, lots of possibilities, right? I guess we purchase a lot of new aquariums each year, you know, and, and filters and pumps and heaters and additives and plants and wood and even botanicals, and I'm good with that, totally. But... Sometimes I still sit back with my coffee and I do the amateur math in my head and I wonder, where do all the fishes, the extra fishes, where do they all go? Who has them? Well, no answers today. Your guess is as good as mine, yet it is pretty interesting to contemplate, isn't it? It is. And I find it fascinating that, you know, we we worry so much about fishes and we spend enormous time of, and money and energy attempting to create the ideal, I don't know, environment or aquascape or whatever for our fishes. And let's face it, pretty much no matter how we scape a tank, no matter how much or how little thought and effort we put into it, our fishes are ultimately going to adapt to it. You ever thought about that? They'll find the places that they're comfortable hiding in, the places they like to forage, to sleep, and to spawn. It doesn't matter if your scape consists of a few selected roots, seed pods, rocks, plants, or driftwood, or simply a couple of clay flower pots and a few pieces of egg crate your fishes will make it work. 
It's what fishes do. It's what they've done for eons. And as aquarists, we've collectively and admirably done for a century or so this art of trying to create optimum conditions for the fishes that we keep. And this includes both the physical, structural, and chemical environments. We've talked a lot about the chemical environment vis-a-vis our botanical method aquariums. And let's just think for a moment about the physical, structural environment that we create for our fishes and why we do it. When we're planning an aquarium, we spend an enormous amount of time selecting the right materials, you know, rocks, wood, in our case, botanicals, whatever, to get the right, you know, feel for our aquarium. But this is a very enjoyable phase in an aquarium build for sure. But take yourself out of the, I'm going to enter this one in the aquascaping contest and place high mindset for just a second and put yourself in the mind of a fish. Yeah, think like a fish for a moment. I mean, sure, I'll bet that fishes like living in those insanely cool scapes that you see in all the contests. However, they're mainly designed and constructed for the pleasure of humans, right? They're designed for our taste, specifically for human judges who evaluate design based on a set of specific criteria. Iwagumi looks really cool, but I'd hazard a guess that you won't find many of these submerged Stonehenge you know, features in the natural streams and rivers of the world. I'm just going to go out on a limb and make that speculation. So what about considering just how fishes interact with the aquascape that you create? My suggestion, again, think like a fish a bit more. Really, it, it might be kind of fun and educational to think about where your fishes are found in the natural streams, lakes, and rivers that they come from, and sort of work backwards from there. I mean, fishermen have been doing this for eons. Why not fish hobbyists? It makes perfect sense because, well, we have a pretty fair collective understanding of how fishes interact with their environment, don't we? I think we do. Let's think about this. Let's look at some features of natural bodies of water where fishes are commonly found, and that might give you some insight into how to incorporate them into your aquascape. You know, I need not discuss flooded forests all that much because I've pretty much written more on this topic than just about anything over the years and talked about it so you're probably sick of hearing it. Suffice it to say, my obsession with these unique habitats is well-founded. They're filled with amazing features ranging from you know, tree trunks to root tangles to submerged terrestrial plants and leaf litter, all of which we can replicate in the aquarium in really dramatic fashion. And then there's those flooded Pantanal meadows, you know, essentially grasslands with low scrub brush and plants, which are flooded seasonally, providing this rich and diverse underwater habitat for all kinds of fishes. These habitats, equally as engrossing as flooded forests, are seldom replicated in the aquarium for reasons that I can't really understand. Perhaps it's that dirty aesthetic again, which is throwing us off. Regardless, the fishes make use of the submerged grasses and the vegetation for foraging and spawning all the time. And of course, there's many features of streams and rivers that fishes love to congregate in. Think about how you might consciously incorporate some of them into your next aquascape. Now, first off, a few sweeping generalities. Fishes tend to live in areas where the food and protection is, as we've talked about previously. Places that provide protection from stronger current and above and below water predators. Places where they can create territories, interact, spawn, and defend themselves. Bends and streams and rivers are particularly interesting places because the swifter movement will typically carry food and fishes seem to know this. And if there's a tree branch, a trunk, or a big rock or rocks to break up the flow, there's going to be larger congregations of fishes present. It's just a fact. So the conclusion here is that if you, at least in theory, if you design your scape to have a higher open water flow rate and include some features like rocks and large branches, you'll likely see the fishes hanging in those areas. In situations where you're replicating a faster flowing stream environment, 
think about creating some little rock pockets, perhaps on one side of the aquarium, so you create areas, you know, of lesser water movement. Your, your fishes won't will typically sort of orient themselves facing upstream to catch any food particles that happen on by. So, from a design perspective, if you want to create a cool rock feature that your fishes will likely gather in, orienting the flow towards it would be a good way to accomplish this in the aquarium. Now. Among the richest habitats for fishes and streams and rivers are so-called drop-offs in which the bottom contour takes a significant plunge and an increase in depth. And these are often caused by current over time or even the accumulation of rocks, leaves, and fallen trees, which dam things up, you know, in the stream a little bit. Um, you know, extra, you, you see this in rift lakes in Africa too, right? Yeah, you do. Now, fishes are often found in drop-offs in significant numbers because these spots afford depth, which thwarts the hunting efforts of those pesky birds, typically offer slower water movement, numerous nooks and crannies in which they can forage, hide, or spawn, and a more restive dining area for fishes to have to contend with strong currents. From an aquascaping perspective, this gives you a whole lot of cool ideas, doesn't it? Possibilities. Now, let's say you're saddled with one of those seemingly ridiculous deep tanks, and a drop-off could be a perfect subject to replicate, and there's even commercially made drop-off tanks now. With a little observation of natural habitats, some planning, and a bit of creativity, there's no limit to how effective a recreation of this habitat you could accomplish. Overhanging trees are common in jungle areas, as we've discussed many, many times. Fishes tend to congregate under trees for the dimmer lighting, the thermal protection, and food, you know, insects and fruits and seeds that fall into the, off the trees into the water. And of course, if you're talking about a leaf litter or a botanically influenced aquascape, a rather dimly lit shallow tank could work out really well. Lots of leaves, pieces of wood, and a tree-like root configuration and some seed pods would complete a pretty cool look. For a cool overall scene, you could introduce some riparian plants to simulate the riverbank as well, a rich habitat with a lot of opportunities for the creative aquarist. Why not create an analogous stream or river feature that's known as an undercut? Pretty much the perfect hiding spot for fishes in a stream or a river and undercuts well they occur where the currents have cut as the name implies a little cave-like hole in the rock or substrate material near the shore not only does this feature provide protection from birds and other above water predators it gives fishes an express access to deeper water for feeding and for escaping in water predators trees growing nearby add to the attractiveness of an undercut for fish for reasons we just talked about so subdued lighting would be perfect here you can build up a significant undercut with lots of substrate, rocks, and some wood. And sure, you'd have reduced water capacity, but the effect would be really, really cool. Leaves, the sort of jumping off point of our botanical obsession, form a very important part of these stream habitats. They fall from trees, accumulate in the water, and work their you know, biological magic. It's known by science that leaf litter and the community of aquatic animals that it hosts is, according to one study, of great importance in assimilating energy from forest primary production into the aquatic system. Yeah, it makes total sense, right? It also functions as a means to preserve the nutrients that would simply be lost to the forest, which would inevitably occur if all the material which fell into the streams was simply washed downstream. For fishes, crustaceans, and insects that live in the leaf litter and among the fungi, the detritus, and the decomposing leaves themselves, it's very, they're very important to the overall aquatic habitat. In the aquarium, leaf litter and botanicals certainly perform a similar role in helping to sequester these materials. As we've talked about before, very briefly, I might add, another interesting thing about leaf litter beds is that they actually have structure and longevity even in several studies that I read on the subject. 
the accumulations of leaves in various streams are documented to have existed in the same locations for years to the point where scientists actually have studied the same ones for extended periods of time. Some litter beds form what, in what stream ecologists call meanders, which are stream structures that form when moving water in a stream erodes the outer banks and widens its valley and the inner part of the river has less energy and deposits silt, or in our instance, leaves. There's a whole fascinating science to river and stream structure and with so many implications for understanding how these structures and mechanisms affect fish population, occurrence, behavior, and ecology, it's well worth studying for the aquarium and, you know, uh, for aquarium interpretation. Now, did you get that part where I mentioned that the lower energy parts of the water courses tend to accumulate leaves and sediments and stuff? Yeah, interesting, right? There's other interesting structures in the streams, which would be well served to, you know, we'd be well served to study and replicate in our tanks. Now, streams typically feature two interesting biotopes that we haven't really discussed in much detail over the years, and both of which are quite profoundly impacted by the seasonal rains. Pools with slower current and a substrate covered mainly by deposits of leaf litter, detritus, and driftwood, and what are known as riffles, which are defined as shallow, shallow sections of stream with rapid current and a surface broken by gravel, rubble, or boulders, with a moderately fast flowing current and a mostly sandy bottom with tree roots, driftwood pieces, and small rocks and pebbles. And ooh, that's home to darter kerosens, isn't it? It is. These riffles are consistently more significant in the wet season in most of the tropics, where the obvious impact of higher water volumes are present. In the Amazon, for example, you'll find unexpected abundance of some species familiar to us as hobbyists in these riffles. Species like pyrolina, hyphasobrycon, and hemigrammus of various forms, and even some nanostomas and the Achilleribulus compressiceps. There's a little interesting factoid. Some scientists have postulated that the higher presence of nocturnal presence, uh, predators in the pools adjacent to the more active riffles might increase the number of species that seek refuge in the riffles to avoid them. And ribulus, which if you ever kept those killies, they jump like crazy. Um, they usually live in more intermittent pools along the stream edges outside the main stream channels or normally found at night in these riffles. It's a reduction of stress, indeed survival. That's pretty important in the wild, so I imagine it's equally as important in the aquarium. In the end, look, design and build the aquascape that makes you happy. However, if you're trying to create something a bit different, perhaps a little bit more true to nature for your fishes, you might want to take a little field trip to a nearby stream, a river, a creek, a lake, or where fishes and other aquatic animals reside and observe things from the perspective of how they interact with the features of the environment. You should get outside and do this once in a while. You'll definitely leave with some inspiration, some ideas, and insect bites, of course, and just maybe a slightly different perspective on aquascaping and aquarium keeping in general than you've previously had. Getting a fresh perspective and new inspiration for your hobby is never a bad thing, so thinking like a fish isn't such a bad idea, is it? Yeah, the fishes know it, and you should too. Stay fascinated, stay inspired, stay creative, stay curious, stay unique, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.